Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. I am recovered. <laughs> oh, that's so good to hear. It is. It feels uh, really like such a relief. I feel really grateful. I took a long walk yesterday as I ended my isolation because I'm testing negative on rapid antigen tests now, which is for some organizations, some institutions, that's the marker of um, likelihood of not uh, being contagious anymore. Uh, And so that was my marker for ending my isolation. And as I was taking this really long walk, I bumped into on the streets of West Hollywood, a goat. Oh, yeah. Like um, a greatest of all time? No, like a literal animal goat. <laughs> um, and I, I have no explanation for that besides uh, it's great to live in a city sometimes because random shit like that happens. And for all of the listeners who reached out to me in the last couple of weeks with your concern and love, thank you so much. I tried to respond to each of you, I'm sure. I missed a bunch of you, but thank you very much for your well wishes. I am recovered and better again. So thank you. Especially thanks to whoever sent you that goat messenger. (laughs) I don't know what it means, (laughs) but there is a goat. I took a picture. We can like put it up with the with the show notes so that people can see that I'm not lying. It was there's just a goat uh, in West Hollywood. (laughs) Well, that's great. It's been very cold here, like minus 40 level cold. And I know it's been very cold in a lot of eastern Canada, um, but it's like just not fun cold. And so that plus confinement is a little bit like, okay, wow. Yeah. I remember last winter being like, this sucks. I'm looking forward to next winter. And here, here we are again. Here we are uh, again. But you know what? <laughs> went tobogganing today, went down the hill backwards. I was like, fuck this, bailed. And then I was like, really, fuck this. I hate tobogganing so much. So yeah, I guess, you know, got got out there. Um, so winter, I love it. I do normally love it. But the minus 40, I could do without. Well, I'm glad that you got out at least to try to have some fun. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, winter, winter can be a slog. Yeah. You know, I did, um, I have been skiing a lot. So, I mean, I'm very lucky that I live in a place that has enough snow that we can ski and I can ski at the park that's closest to my, to my apartment. And so, um, yeah, if you have never tried cross-country skiing and you live somewhere where you could try it, I really, really recommend that you do it. It's really fun. Um, and even though it's minus 40, sometimes you can, I, I do it comfortably up to minus 25. So it's, it's good. It's good. But you know what? I'm tired of this pandemic. And I know our listeners are too. And so, um, Sandy, I, I think today we've got a no COVID show. Uh, kind of. Kind of. <laughs> Almost. Almost no COVID. Okay. We, we have like a main topic that's not going to be COVID at all. But then I do want to name just I, I want us to talk a little bit about this company called Switch Health, which is kind of involved in the COVID stuff, but like tangentially, it's not like direct COVID conversation. Mm. How's that? Well, I have no idea what you're talking about. And uh, because I feel like I've done too much reading on COVID. 
I'm already intrigued. So, okay, yeah, fine. We'll make a little exception for that. <laughs> great, great. And so before we get into it, let's thank the people. Yes. Well, we actually have one person to thank this week, um, which is, you know, what happens when you take a month off and then you have a lot of people to thank. And this week, all of it goes to one individual, Linda. Thank you so much for donating to the podcast for the first time and to everybody uh, who supports us, whether financially or um, through telling people about us. And you know what? Even thanks to people that are kind of like, fuck that podcast by Sandy Nora. I saw one of those this week and I was like, oh. I wonder why. I should ask them. And I'm like, no, I shouldn't. I doubt I will change their mind because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's a pretty strong opinion to have. So I assume it's well-formed. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Switch Health. Nora, you don't know what Switch Health is? You haven't heard of them? No. Switch Health. No. No. Switch Health. Okay. So some of you may know what I'm talking about, and some of you may not. It depends on a couple things. One reason you might know them is if you do travel, if you've traveled outside of Canada and then back into Canada, like I have. Um, And if you have, you'll know that pandemic rules are such that if you are traveling into Canada, there are two accounts that you need to make in order for the Canadian government to do what they want to do to make sure that you're as safe as possible coming into the country. One of those uh, accounts is with a uh, run by the government of Canada portal called Arrive Can. Like Arrive Canada, get it? <laughs> yeah, Arrive that's, Can. That's nice that they came up with it's, that. Very clever. Not, it's not a good, yeah, you know, they it expended all of their creative energies on that for sure. <laughs> so there's ArriveCan and ArriveCan makes sure that you have taken the requisite tests that you needed to take um, and that you have the rec- uh, requisite documentation that you need. Pretty innocuous. And then the uh-huh. second account that you need to make is with a company called Switch Health. Switch Health is taking care of all of Canada's border crossing testing requirements. And so for a period in the pandemic, that meant that you make you make this account with Switch Health, you arrive in Canada, and then you are um, mandated to have a test either at the airport or you take it home with Switch Health, this private company. Um, at this point in the pandemic, I think it is like randomized who needs to take tests at the airport, which is an interesting policy that I don't understand, but in any case, that is the decision that's been made. And so this company, Switch Health, is this fairly new company that has uh, received this massive contract uh, from the Canadian government to take care of all of its border testing. And I've just been thinking recently, like, who the hell is this company. I have some contacts that have had some uh, difficulty in um, in the services that Switch Health provides. Um, so for example, my experience, when I arrived in Toronto at one point um, during the pandemic, I made that applica- the uh, account with Switch Health. The testing facilities at the airport were over overused or like they just didn't have enough um, uh, spaces to be able to, to take everybody who's on my flight. So I got a little switch health box to take 
to take home with me. And then I had to like sign on to a switch health, um, to switch health portal so that a nurse could watch me taking my sample at home. And then I put it into a bag, uh, a purulator bag, and then send it off for someone to pick up. So once you send off the bag, you are not allowed to leave your home until you switch health gets back to you okay. with what your status is. And there's been a whole bunch of people who've had this experience of switch health never getting back to them. <laughs> so I started to look up like, what is, what is this company? Who are they? Where'd they come from? And mm. you know what I found, Nora? No. Rona Ambrose sits on their board of directors along with other pretty big names in uh, Canada's corporate world, uh, including the former CEO of Roots, I believe. And this company got the contract to take care of all of this uh, cross-border uh, public health stuff uh, at the time when they had, from what I can tell from the very little information that's about on them online, at the time when they had very few staff. And it's just kind of unbelievable that Canada would give over um, that much power to a small startup private company and never take it back at any point during the pandemic. They've never um, tried to scale up, I suppose, their own ability to do um, testing at the airport on their own as the government of Canada. Like, this is very strange that we have this public, this uh, private company that's doing this stuff. And of course, it's just uh, one of those um, uh, continuing uh, evidence of uh, th these pressures, these private pressures on uh, Canada's public health care system mm -hmm. uh, that is that should make us all pretty nervous. Why the fuck is this company doing this and uh, what for? Yeah. Uh, so while you were talking, I was looking up some stuff myself. And um, I'm not sure if you said how much money the contract has been that they've got for the border testing. But it's $631 million. Wow. I, I believe you said a lot, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot. And then um, what you're reading right now, does it say uh, what the time period for that contract was? It does not. And I ask because, I mean, these are interesting things that we should know about as the public. You know, I imagine that when they got the contract, the government had a a, a, a time limit in mind for how long they would need the, that. It's right now, but it's now we're yeah. in year three. So there may have been a re-up of that contract, a renewal of that contract. Who knows? Um, there have only been, so far as I can tell, a couple of uh, critical articles, mostly in global news. Uh, but mm -hmm. it's, it, uh, you know, this information, we should have this information. We should know about this company and we should know um, how who else bid and how those bids went and why it went to this particular company and when this uh, this public-private partnership is going to end, if at all. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's not just Canada. Um, so I've also found on December 23rd, um, so the day, one of the days where Omicron's really starting to accelerate in Ontario, the provincial government announced that they were opening a new mass vaccination clinic in Peel, 
which um, which was so interesting because when I came home, I was in Halton, which is right beside Peel. And Halton Public Health refuses to vaccinate people who are not from Halton, which is very bizarre. I mean, in Quebec City, they were vaccinating tourists with no problem. Um, and so, you know, but in Peel, uh, I had looked the day that I landed, uh, which was December 23rd, the day of this of this release. Um, and there's just so many people trying to go to these mobile clinics that were being organized by, by Peel Public Health that like they just couldn't get to everybody. So this gets announced. Um, and oh, who got the contract to do the pop-up clinic in Peel? Switch Health. So that's very interesting. And, you know, again, that it's it's the privatization of health services. And then you go to the Switch Health Twitter account, and the last thing they tweeted is an article from CBC um, Nova Scotia as part of CBC's um, Being Black in Canada series. Um, featuring someone who struggled and got to nursing school and struggled through nursing school and is now proudly working at a pop-up clinic for Switch Health in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. So, yeah, they seem to be really working um, contracts in this country and certainly um, exploiting the fact that governments are still unprepared to, to actually run this stuff. Um, and, and it's, I know, frankly, you know, it's, it's pretty stunning to see. And it's certainly, um, in Ontario at least, demonstrates like just how chaotic the rollout is. If they're having to hire these companies that only were founded in what, 2017 mm-hmm. to, to do what is the core work of public health? I mean, at least where I am, there it hasn't been a mass clinic that hasn't been public, that hasn't been operated by public health. And our vaccine rollout has been smooth. <laughs> so thank you for highlighting that. And um, Wow is I guess all I can say. Yeah. Wow. Okay, but that's not our main story tonight. Our main story tonight is about Canada and its involvement in Ukraine and this potential, you know, it, to add on to all of the terrible things we're all dealing with um, as the years go by, uh, since I feel like forever. Um, let's add on a potential new international war yeah why not yeah especially you know it's it's pandemic time um and what would make the people feel better and more normal than um a new war so yeah let's talk about it yeah so we made a passing reference to this last week and it's definitely an issue that that deserves far more than a passing reference um if you ask i don't know um people who are really hoping that we go to war, I guess, if, um, like, what is going on? Uh, Canada is about to stop World War III. Canada is about to stop World War III, and we're doing so by getting into Ukraine and making sure that their soldiers are ready to fight against Russia, because Russia is ready for war. And it is just so amazing to watch Canada's establishment just, like, uh, consolidate that uh, that position so quickly. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but like Andrew Coyne popped a Ukrainian flag into his Twitter handle um, this past I did week. See that, right? I, did see oh, that. I think and maybe I even mentioned that actually. Now that I'm saying this aloud, I made a joke about you it. Did. So you yeah, did okay, mention fuck. it. <laughs> yeah, right. Noted, noted Ukrainian Andrew Coyne. Um, and then I don't know, saying if you saw the NDP fucking MPs and their Ukrainian stuff. <laughs> 
No, I haven't. Do tell. Oh, my God. It was like you had the two Edmonton MPs saying, like, you know, all in for war against Russia. Although in other words, which were more like Ukrainian voters vote for us. We will have your back. And um, it's just so like, I don't know, maybe maybe like the fact that we're reliving current events right now so quickly because COVID is forcing us to like relive things in a very accelerated timeline that it feels like marching towards war right now. Uh, is like very predictable and like I know what's coming next. I mean, fuck, David Frum today uh, h- expressed his, uh, well, uh, if, if the only person that wants us to go to war is Putin and if he forces the West into war, that's his thing. And it's like, guy, are you like, why don't you just call him the axis of fucking evil? Like that worked the first time and you you even made money off of saying you were wrong, but we're fucking doing it again. It's very boring. <laughs> it's very, very boring politics. Like, are we back here again? Are we back here again? Is that what's happening? Look, you know what I think the, the most one of the most distressing things about this is that we there's been a collapse of the anti-war movement in Canada. And um, you can really probably feel that collapse because um, at this time in, say, uh, 2001 or 2003, there is a lot more energy towards anti-war movement anti-war organizing and making sure that there was uh, progressive analysis uh, in the media around uh, what was hap- around the war mongering and like the the impacts on average people and that we haven't seen a lot of that um, uh, so far with respect to this particular situation although uh, certain Journalists have rightfully pointed out, and if you haven't heard this before, you really should hear this, that part of Canada's engagement in the Ukraine right now has been to um, provide resources and training to um, a part of uh, the Ukrainian National Guard that is directly connected to Nazis. Nazi efforts, Nazi organizations. And I mean, in the context of uh, Canada's engagement on a global scale, just generally, and the way that Canada likes to present itself, uh, it's like, hey, yeah, sure. Canada, uh, like outwardly and explicitly supporting uh, white supremacists and uh, ensuring that they are armed up and ready to go. Yeah, that seems... That seems good. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? It's great. A couple of weeks ago, um, and I mentioned this on last week's show, like my hometown, Halton Police, um, Twitter account was like, oh, welcome back or welcome or good luck or whatever the fuck they're saying. I don't know, to someone uh, who was going off on training a mission, a, a member of the Halton Police Force was training Ukrainian security forces. And I went back and, and looked, and, and this has been going on for a while, right? Like Canadian uh, police, uh, RCMP, and then, you know, local police forces can, I don't know, fucking, I don't know, select, draw straws for who's going to head out there and train their their uh, security forces and uh, you know through operation unifier which is what it's been called for a couple of years we've been we've been engaged with them and as you mentioned like this whole reference to nazis like canada knows that there are very organized nazi elements within the ukrainian armed forces and it's it's like you are not allowed to mention this uh, outside from like, I think I've only seen a single journalist really write about it in any serious way. 
Um, but aside from from that, it's it's just completely absent from the coverage. And instead, I mean, you know, the current had this. Um, they've had a couple of segments on Russia Ukraine in the last week, and the the, the most recent one that I heard. They had this woman on from one of Canada's national Ukrainian organizations, and she was like, this is going to be the biggest refugee crisis ever. This will be the biggest refugee crisis ever, and this will be World War III. And Matt Galloway, rather than being like, you know, naming some of the current refugee crises that we have going on and, and, and or like fucking heaven forbid talking about Canada's negative role in exasperating refugee crises or how terrible we are to refugees and how unaccepting we are to people with refugee claims. He's just like, oh, yeah, OK, you know, next question. And so the, the rhetoric is very, very fascinating. It's very intense. It's very um, like Russia, Russia phobic, clearly. And it's impossible to get a read on what the fuck is actually happening because it's all being told through the lens that Canada is absolutely on the right side of history. And we are going to be stopping the aggressive Russians from invading Ukraine, uh, even though Russia keeps saying we're not going to do that. And like, I mean, on one hand, like, whoa, you believe them? Like, maybe they'll just still invade. It's like, what, what Russia, what does Russia have to lose by being like, yeah, we're fucking invading. Like, we're a world power. Uh, and then the other hand, it's like, I'm sorry, the United States just fucking ran the fuck away from Afghanistan. They are not getting into a war with Ukraine. So I'm so confused as to, like, how Canada is, like, the the warmonger in this situation, like absolutely sure that we're going to fucking save Ukraine from Vladimir Putin. It's interesting that you, you, you say that about the United States, because there was like uh, two very different um, communications from the United States, I believe this week. Um, one uh, from Biden um, that seemed kind of wishy-washy on the idea of going to war uh, with Russia, saying that if Russia... Um, you know, took any measures like right now, Russia has apparently stationed a bunch of troops at the border and that uh, Biden said that if they took any measures, they, they would have to assess um, what those measures were and then and decide on on their response uh, uh, based on what Russia actually does or does not do. And then later on, Jen Psaki, uh, the press secretary, uh, clarified to say that, yeah, if Russia like uh, does anything, we will, you know, with the strongest hand, like, <laughs> you know, beat them back, blah, blah, blah. May basically said, you know, we're going to war. Absolutely. If Russia does anything. So different approaches from different people in the Biden administration. Who knows what's correct? But I think that one of the ways to look at uh, Canada's engagement is to just see what Canada is actually <laughs> saying about its own engagement uh, in the Ukraine. And so, you know, after we spoke last week, I, I decided to do some looking into it and some research as to, to how uh, Canada is presenting itself. And uh, one of those things um, to talk, uh, to go back a little bit about uh, policing is the way that it's talking about um, what Canada calls its international police peacekeeping and peace operations program. And mm. so on, <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, so when we say <laughs> defund the police, uh, you know, like maybe we could start with the foreign police <laughs> like <laughs> engagement, like what the fuck? So Canada has a, has published like a, uh, website that is 
called Canada's engagement in the Ukraine, which talks about what it's doing. And so um, the way that it uh, talks about this is to say that uh, Canada is striving, through peace and security, Canada is striving to increase the psychological and economic resilience of conflict-affected populations, including internally displaced persons. Um, and it's doing this in part through this, uh, this International Police and Peace Operations Program, which has been operating since March 2015 in Ukraine. And it includes um, deployment of RCMP, uh, um, uh, as part of this. And uh, throughout 2021, Canada, it says, has had an average of 16 police officers deployed to Ukraine. This increased to 24 uh, police officers deployed in early 2022. Police officers are deployed to enhance police training, investigation, and gender-based violence response. Implementing community policing models, improving internal accountability and oversight mechanisms. All things Canada is known to be expert at with policing. Uh, Canada, <laughs> Canadian officers have delivered training um, through what they're calling the Territorial Community Policing Officer Program and coordinated the development of a new course on community policing um, at their university, among other initiatives. Smells like colonialism to me. Oh, mm -hmm. no. The export mm -hmm. of Canadian uh, policing. And this also happens through the United States, this exporting of policing. Um, and, you know, the, the way there's a lot on this website. I encourage you folks to, to take a look at it of um, a whole bunch of things that Canada is apparently providing to the Ukraine that it, it isn't even providing to people in Canada, like including access to water empowerment of women and girls like it's it's it is a really interesting propaganda site it's very strange hmm well and there's another thing that they're offering um to uh to Ukraine that I'm not sure if you've heard about this. And a lot of my information, I mean, I'm, I, I follow a lot of folks who do a lot of this research uh, for alternative media, Canadian and international alternative media. But in mainstream Canada, the only person writing about this is David Palazzi at the Ottawa Citizen. And so a lot of what I'm, I know, a lot of what a lot of Canadians know is thanks to his work. Um, and so big shout out to David, um, because if it wasn't for him, we would fucking not know a lot of this stuff. Um, Sandy, did you know that Canada is planning to build an ammunition factory in Ukraine? <laughs> what? Oh, you didn't know this? <laughs> this this isn't something that's on the website of our amazing collaboration because it's not private. It's this is public. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, they left that part out of the website. Do tell. Well, Palazzi's article says that this initiative is being planned um, and involves a number of Ontario companies. I'm quoting now. And the Canadian Commercial Corporation in Ottawa, the corporation is supposed to help with, I guess, um, for helps firms, he says here, secure international contracts with governments. And um, what's really fascinating about this article uh, is that it goes through like all of the different um, information, I guess, that Palazzi was able to, f to, to pull on the companies involved. And so he's got... Here, last June, I mean, this is an article from the beginning of January, so it's, it's recent. But he, he writes, in June, Waterbury Farrell of Brampton, Ontario, announced it had joined with a newly created firm called GL Munitions, based in Toronto, to provide Ukraine with the ammunition production facility. 
Waterbury Farrell stated it was working with the Canadian government through the Canadian Commercial Corporation to meet this goal. Also involved in the venture was Ukroboronprom, Ukraine's organization of defense firms. Um, GL Munitions has since dissolved, according to federal records, says Pulezi. And um, Andrew Leslie, a former liberal MP and retired Canadian Forces Lieutenant General, who is director of company, told this newspaper, told the Ottawa Citizen, he was no longer associated with the venture and no further details. And so it goes on and on and on. And, but it's very clear that there's a lot of uh, Canadian involvement because it then mutates to involve, the, according to the, the, the Canadian Corporation group, the CCC, a new firm, says Pulezi, called Goldleaf Munitions with the same address in Toronto as GL Munitions. Goldleaf, GL, very nice. This now group has popped up. <laughs> David Angus of the Capitol Hill Group in Ottawa is listed as director of Goldleaf Munitions, but did not respond to requests for comment. Um, and he's also been previously registered as a consultant for GL Munitions, according to the Federal Lobbyist Registry. So, um, yeah, like we seem to be pretty fucking interested in a war. <laughs> and um, I feel like this whole ammunition factory thing uh, probably should be, you know, mentioned every single time that we talk about this. That in addition to to some of the other really weird ways that Canada is involved in the Ukraine. Do you remember um, that whole feminist plan that Chester Trudeau had that they did with uh, the U.S. government just after Trump was um, elected? This idea to like help feminism around the world? I do not. I, I must have missed that in writing my book on feminism. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we definitely spoke about it on the podcast. Okay, we were incensed about it. I have no <laughs> idea. You know what? I mean, I have a special part of my brain for information that can definitely be set on fire, and that probably was where I where I filed that. <laughs> well, um, one of the things that is justifying uh, Canada's uh, involvement in the Ukraine is, uh, as this website says, and I quote is guided by the feminist international assistance policy, which is meant to support socioeconomic programs in Ukraine, building a strong and accountable democracy in the Ukraine, and contributing to peace and security in Ukraine and the region as a whole. Uh, and so what that amounts to, uh, one of the things that they are uh, trying to target, as they say, is the empowerment of women and girls and promoting women's political participation in Ukraine. <laughs> We're so good at this. How does that sound? How does that sound? Great, right? This isn't warmongering. We're just trying to help the women. I, they for sure paid $30,000 for that idea. <laughs> Yeah. Well, there is also news that has just broken this past weekend that uh, says that Canada is entering a special partnership, which sounds very racy. Um, and this partnership, this is now being uh, reported <laughs> by the Canadian press. So, of course, in this article, there's no mention of the Nazis. There's no mention of the fucking ammunition factory. I don't think I'm scanning this quickly, but it doesn't seem to be it. No, nothing like that. Um, it, it, we're giving them some money. We're going to hand over a loan of $120 million, which has been, I mean, obviously welcomed by the president of Ukraine. Uh, he's pretty happy uh, that we're sending this uh, very hefty loan to that country. 
I think it's probably a good time to note that Canada has the biggest population of Ukrainian people outside of Ukraine and Russia, this article notes. And so, like, this entire conversation cannot be divorced from, like, very basic and crass politics, which is why this article, and we have already mentioned the the fact that um, comments have been made by foreign affairs critic NDP Heather McPherson uh, saying that the NDP officially um, supports this. Um, she said with, quote, the escalating threats of further Russian invasion, we must stand in solidarity with Ukraine and its people. We urge the government to continue working with our allies to pressure Russia to back down before they take drastic measures. Um, I just feel like it's like fucking upside down world. This is this is I mean, 120,000, 120 million dollars is not a, a a lot in some ways, but like we we are in a fucking pandemic and I can think of individuals in Canada who would be very happy to share 120 million dollars like if it was made available to them. Uh, do you want to uh, put that into perspective in in one way? Um, the the federal government, as part of its programming uh, towards uh, uh, Black Canadians and um, also the pandemic, allocated a certain amount to try to, uh, I suppose, quote unquote, save um, some of the businesses in a place in Toronto called Little Jamaica, which of which there's a lot of of Black people and is a really important hub uh, for uh, black culture in Canada. Do you know how much the government allocated to help save those businesses? Oh, something like that sounds like $5 million. Nope. Uh, Okay, I'm going to assume you want it to go lower um, with that nope. Okay, yeah. Yep. (laughs) Uh, $2 million. (laughs) Nope. Uh, $250,000. It's one million. One million. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's not going to do even a little bit to, <laughs> to, to save no. this corridor of, a lo- of which a lot of businesses are really struggling um, just because of the pandemic and also because of other reasons, things that are happening uh, in Toronto. But it's just putting the, that stuff into perspective, taking a look at the way that the government has abandoned um, people in Canada, um, both during this pandemic and then also in, in a myriad other amounts of ways that it does that, um, that it fails uh, people in Canada. Like, really interesting that this sort of uh, commitment is easy for them to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no conversation about Ukraine would be complete without mentioning, of course, Canada's number two politician. Who am I talking about, Sandy? Christian Freeland, the future prime minister, <laughs> the future prime minister of Canada. Yeah, yeah. I guess we should probably see all of these gifts to Ukraine in, in that lens. Um, so we've got Christian Freeland, who is a very proud Ukrainian, which is great. I mean, there's nothing wrong at all with being proud of your roots. Um, you know, some of us have roots. I shouldn't say us because I I, I don't. Um, but some some of us have roots um, that are not that are not you know something to be super proud of. Like some of us have grandparents who um, were journalists who owned presses. Some of us had had grandparents, grandfathers who um, smashed uh, the, the Jewish ownership of newspapers in Ukraine and took them over and ran them as literally explicit Nazi propaganda wings. Whoa. And um, in the case of Christopher Freeland, uh, that's 
that's how that was her mentor into how she got into journalism, because, of course, she was a journalist at one point in her life. Um, her grandfather was not just a Nazi, but a fucking Nazi, a real Nazi. And then again, an article in the Ottawa Citizen from David Pulezi. And this is the the headline is quite telling because <laughs> and then I'll explain why. And he goes through this. Christopher Freeland's granddad was indeed a Nazi collaborator. So much for Russian disinformation. So when this news comes out and it's not like hidden or, or secret or anything like her, her grandfather is like actually kind of famous and his name's Michael Chomiak. And he immigrated to Alberta right after the, the, the war and was was prominent. Um, and so this comes out as like, hey, did you know that Christopher Freeland's grandfather was a Nazi? And her office instantly tells journalists, no, there's no truth to that. Um, no comment. What? And with a little <laughs> bit of digging. Yeah, like in the, the Globe and Mail reported that an official in Freeland's office denied the minister's grandfather was a Nazi collaborator. And I mean, like even saying Nazi collaborator is like very fucking generous, right? Mm hmm. Freeland's response when a journalist asked her originally quoted in this article is, quote, American officials have publicly said and even Angela Merkel has publicly said that there are efforts on the Russian side to destabilize Western democracies. And I think it shouldn't come as a surprise if these same efforts were used against Canada. Right. This was written in 2017 when like the whole Russia caused Trump to get elected stuff happened. Um, pretty amazing claim to, to hide the fact that this was very, very clear. Um, and she knows it um, to say that this is like to destabilize democracy. It's like, lady, calling you a Nazi is not going to destabilize Canada's democracy. Give me a fucking break. But. Um, I do think it is uh, notable to say, so, you know, he he edited this newspaper, Krakivsky Visti, um, and he edited, he was forced to flee from Ukraine, first to Krakow and Poland, and then to Vienna, because, um, of course, the Russians um, advanced into Poland and were not super impressed with Nazis or the Nazi press. And Pelosi actually quotes um, what the Holocaust Museum in Los Angeles says about this newspaper. Um, and so here it is. Uh, the editorial boards uh, and then this newspaper and, and a couple of other ones were very similar, carried out a policy of soliciting Ukrainian support for the German cause. It was typical within these publications to not give any accounts of the German genocidal policy and largely the additions resorted to silencing the mass killing of Jews in Galicia Ukrainian newspapers presented the Jewish question in light of the official Nazi propaganda corollary to the Jewish world conspiracy. Um, and in 43 and 44, both the Lvivsky Visti and Krakvisky Visti, um, I speak nothing of these languages, but it sounds like that's like uh, Lviv and Krakow. They were hailed as the German approved formation of the 14th Waffen SS division. Halicina, Halicina, composed of Ukrainian volunteers. Okay, so um, pretty fucking clear that um, he's a Nazi. Uh, this article even has a picture of uh, her grandfather at a party with uh, an, a Nazi administrator in charge of the press for the region, including Krakow. So I don't know. I mean, like, if I came from a fucking, not just a Nazi family, but a fucking Nazi propaganda, very, very uh, involved in hiding the fucking Holocaust, I would be a little bit like, oh, I love my grandfather, but yeah, that he was that was fucked up. That was really fucked up. But she refuses to condemn his involvement. She refuses. I mean, she didn't. She she didn't even, like acknowledge that he was a fucking Nazi to the press, right? Which is like, 
Give me a break. And so this whole like like Nazis versus the Soviets and, um, you know, protecting glorious democracy, Western democracy in Ukraine and all this fucking bullshit that comes from someone like Christian Freeland. We have to be really, really fucking aware of what is going on here in Canada and that we are we, we are literally being marched towards a fucking I don't know, a war of, of I don't know, of what, returning to the glory of fucking Freeland's grandfather or what, like, what exactly is happening here? And when I was listening to The Current, what I thought was so interesting was um, the CBC's Briar Stewart was in the Donetsk region, which is now um, being run by, uh, like, a republic, an independent republic that she, you know, mentions many times is not recognized by um, any uh, international um, players and that there was a referendum to become ind- independent that also is not being recognized by like NATO or the West or whatever. And she talks to this family and the family like lost a son in the war in the last couple of years. And they are, um, you know, they are tired of the war. And she says like, it, if, if they were asked to be picking a side, they lean towards the Russians, but that they support the independent leadership of the, of the region. Um, and then adds, but it's complicated because the family's in Ukraine. And it's like, that doesn't sound very complicated. That sounds like there's some like international leadership that are trying to create these borders, whereas the people themselves are like moving between the borders and not super interested in fucking being marched to war. Um, and, you know, we're not going to really hear those accounts, I don't think, as it becomes clear that they don't help the war effort if the powers that be in this country want to please a certain population and march us into ammunition factory building in uh, another country. Oh, man, there is so much here. And I think that I'm going to, again, go back to what I said at the beginning of this, that the the collapse of the anti-war movement is uh, is just really palpable. Um, we need uh, an anti-war movement that is going to point out these things and force um, us as a public generally to take a look at this. Because, you know, as Nora mentioned earlier, this stuff is not new. It follows a pattern, a pattern that is recognizable and that we have seen Canada, the United States, um, sort of like this kind of war imperialism happen on the stage before, given that we're in the midst of a pandemic that has had significant economic um, impacts on us uh, globally, uh, we know what happens when we're at a a place of uh, negative economics globally. A lot of times, countries like the United States and Canada have an interest in going into war during those times. Um, There's, you know, the the idea of the the shock doctrine um, of what happens when there is this sort of uh, devastation uh, in a, a, a region of the world that then gets used and exploited uh, to make money for a lot of people, to gain political power in the West, and so on. Um, it is so imperative that we have these movements to, to point these, these things out to us and to make sure that um, we have the information that we need. All of the ways that this is going to impact uh, uh, Canadian politics, all of the interests, the motivations, it's complicated, and it's also, again... Uh, a repeat of something that's happened in the past several times. And so um, for those of you who are listening who may have been involved in anti-war movements in the past, like uh, maybe it's time to (laughs) 
<laughs> to, to start writing, <laughs> to start connecting with people, to start creating um, a pushback because it really does look like um, we're headed towards a, a place of where we've been before. And that place um, has a whole bunch of devastation, a whole bunch of death, a whole bunch of negative consequences for people at home and abroad and all over the place. And so uh, I just, I, you know, I hope uh, that we're going to see some writing in some of our um, uh, progressive left-wing uh, publications about this, but also in more than just the Ottawa Citizen. Um, you know, we need, we need news on this. We need to understand what's happening and uh, uh, how we uh, can put the pressure on to to shift how Canada is operating um, in the Ukraine and in other foreign policy initiatives.